the following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Jeffrey Foote, Ph.D., co-founder and executive director of CMC. CMC stands for Community Reinforcement Approach and Family Therapy and Family Training Craft. Um, he is a former psychologist for the New York Mets and is author of Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change. Welcome to the show, Dr. Foote. Jeffrey, nice to have you on this morning. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me here. Well, your book and approach has been described uh, as one of the most important new resources for the millions of families, and unfortunately there are millions of families struggling with drug and alcohol problems, and, of course, all the hopelessness and the helplessness that goes along with it. So, um, and I'm, as a social worker, obviously, I am very familiar with this. And just to give you some background, I did work in an alcoholism treatment center for probably 10 to 12 years, uh, about 20 years ago. So I am familiar with the problem. Um, you have a very unique approach, obviously, to... Uh, to working with individuals who suffer from drug and alcohol addiction, but it's not just the individuals you work with, it's also the families. And somehow in the past, in terms of how we have dealt with families who have a loved one who is suffering from alcohol or drug addiction, we kind of leave the families out of the picture. Um, So we'll start with that. Yours is a very unique approach, and why is it different? Well, really, the... the the way you just described it, I think, is a is a great starting point to talk about it because it's um, we we wrote the book for families. We you know we run a, a treatment center in Manhattan and now an inpatient rehab up in Massachusetts, um, which is the Center for Motivation and Change. And um, we deal with lots of people. We have a fairly large center in in both places. Um, but um, part of what we are aiming to do with this book is really start to try to change the conversation about substance use issues um, and, and secondly, to really help families because while we can spend all of our days as, <clears throat> as psychologists and social workers and psychiatrists sitting and talking to people one-on-one or in groups, the number of people we reach that way is very small um, and, and part of what we're trying to get out in terms of the word and the conversation changing is that there, there are a variety of ways to help someone with a substance abuse issue, um, and there are, are some very powerful ways to help families and for families to help also. Um, and, 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 Jeffrey, let's talk about also maybe we should just give some statistics because this is a huge problem. Yeah. Um, and uh, the statistic I have here is that addiction impacts one in four families in the United States. That's a lot of people. And lot of so people. if it's one in four families, you're talking not just about the individual, you're talking about the individual, the parents, the children, the siblings, spouses, friends, grandparents, all of the significant others in the family. And so all of those destructive 
behaviors that go along with addiction affect yeah. all of these people. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, it's, it's literally the conversation you would have with anybody where there's it, that feeling of like, well, everybody knows somebody and, you know, um, oh, my brother has a, his wife has a problem or, you know, it's, it's never very far from a given conversation if you, if you scratch beneath the surface. Um, and, yeah, t- I mean, uh, the other numbers I would, I would throw out are there are diagnostic rules for who's, who's having a severe problem and who's not. And if you just look at the category of abuse and dependence, which is um, uh, the two categories that are used diagnostically and that are mean that the problem is pretty substantial, you have something like 20, 25 million people in this country who meet that criteria. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, a, a tenth of the adult population. Um, and then the number that's added on top of that is that for every person who's struggling in that way, you have close to five people um, who are directly impacted, not like, hey, I, know, I knew that guy was having problems, but like this person is in my family or this person works for me or this person is my boss. or you know. So the circle is huge. Um, it's not like a discrete problem that a couple of people have. Yeah. Um, Even in, in terms of what I think we've established, obviously, you know, the numbers are... Uh, uh, astounding and outstanding, I guess, but it's not just the emotional toll, but also we're talking about in terms of money and finance, because you mentioned employment. You have employees who are who suffer from alcohol and drug addiction, so you can imagine how that impacts businesses just from a, a monetary standpoint. But one of the things, and you know, as a social worker, uh, I've always been taught, okay, someone has a drug problem, an addiction problem, you've got two choices. You can either put them in rehab if it's bad enough and if the problem appears bad enough in terms of the diagnosis, or you have to wait till they hit rock bottom and then they'll do something about it themselves. But you have a very different approach yeah. um, and, and unique, I guess, because... That's really, I think, the, been sort of the gold standard for treatment, rehab or rock bottom. Yep, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's, frankly, it's sort of a tragedy that that's where we've been for all these years. Um, uh, and I'll just say the, the approach is the, that you talked about earlier is called CRAFT, which is Community Reinforcement and Family Training. And that's, it's not something that we made up and, you know, I'm just such a smart guy and I came up with this great idea that I call it craft and so forth. It's something that's been developed over the last 25, 30 years. Um, started with some, um, with some psychologists out at the University of New Mexico. Bob Myers is, is the main guy's name. Um, and then there have just been a number of research studies on this for, for the last 25 years. Um, and, and those research studies are, are why we use this because... Um, what has happened in the field of, of addiction treatment over many years is that there are, there are a number of approaches that we now know are very effective through research studies and through clinical practice, and those are what we would call evidence-based treatments um, because there's evidence demonstrating them to be effective. You know, if you, if you went to uh, uh, an oncologist for, for um, uh, cancer problems, you would, you would really wish and hope and expect um, probably most importantly, that that person is up on the literature, they know the best treatments, they've, you know, they were trained recently in what to do, and not that just that they have some ideas that they like and that they pursue and that that's what they'd like to do with you because they feel strongly about it. You'd, you would think that was nutty. You would think, what's the best approach? What's been demonstrated in the research literature to be the best approach? And that's what I want for myself. Um, and, and that's what you would expect in, in, with any sort of health problem. In addiction treatment, um, We've really had a number of strategies and approaches 
for the last 50 or 60 years, um, which are helpful for some people, not so helpful for other people, um, and are really what you get if you go for treatment. Um, and in the last 30 years, we've had thousands of research studies on effective approaches that have been demonstrated to be effective, and many of those are not used. So one of those is this way to help families, which is called CRAFT. And you, you said it exactly correctly, which is the, the message out in the culture and even within the treatment field, and if you'd ask professionals about this, they would say the same thing. Well, if someone calls, you know, someone's wife calls me and says, my husband's drinking, he won't stop, and I don't know what to do, and it's, you know, our family is spiraling, and my, or my kid is smoking a bunch of pot, and I don't even know how to talk to him anymore, and all he does is stay in his room, and, and what are people told? And you said it exactly right, which is you're told either to detach with love, that's one of the ideas, and let them hit bottom because you can't have any impact on them, or to intervene in some dramatic way, like a intervention you would see on TV with lots of you know, tears and door slammings and lots of drama. Um, and, and what we know now from all the evidence is that neither of those is actually particularly helpful, um, uh, and that there are other strategies that families can use that are incredibly helpful uh, and that are not about detaching or stepping away. Um, and I guess the, the really positive part about that, in addition to the fact that it's an, an effective way to help somebody decide to make some changes, is that it's really harnessing this huge power of the family. Um, you know, again, I can sit in my office and talk to somebody once a week or five times a week. I'm seeing them, you know, an hour, three hours out of their, you know, 168 hours a week or whatever we all get um, in life. And the rest of the time they're out living their life and being impacted by everything that happens in their life, their friends, their work, and, and in particular, their families. Um, so let's talk about specifically how it does work. And going back to the example you just gave, um, Jeffrey, like so the, someone, um, and this, you're as a therapist, social worker, psychologist, uh, wife calls and says, yes, my husband is drinking. He has a drinking problem maybe, and or a drug problem, and he won't stop. What do I do? How, you know, and the response would not be, would you just, you know, you just gave us as an example, like rehab right. or detaching. Um, but what would you say to that person in that example? Then how would you handle it using the craft method? Right. I'd say go buy this great new book called Beyond Addiction by <laughs> Jeff Foote. Um, and then I'd say, Absolutely. You've got to start with that, right? <laughs> right. Um, actually, I probably would say that, or I would say go buy a Bob Myers book, Get Your Loved One Sober, which talks about craft also. Either one are fine resources. Um, to just help people start to get their head around this in a different way. Because, again, what's, what happens, you know, if you step back and think about this, what happens with most families when there's an addiction issue going on is things start to really go badly. Um, there's a, a deception because people don't like to talk about what's really going on. Uh, there's a lot of upset emotions. There's a lot of bad communication. The communications just get worse and worse. There's a lot of yelling or a lot of shutting down or there you go again and, you know, I asked you not to do this and um, senses of betrayal. I mean, the, the emotional stuff is really, really bad and anger and guilt and, you know, and families react in such a strong way. I mean, they, they feel guilty that somehow they could have prevented this or, um, or and, and, that, and one of the big ones is they feel shame. You know, they don't want to talk about it with other people. Um, it's got to be a secret. My husband is, you know, is, is drinking too much, and I really don't want to tell my sister about that or my, you know, my friend across the street about that because in this society, it's a stigmatized problem. 
um, you would say, you know, my husband has, has cancer and we're taking him for treatments now. People rarely want to say, my, problem, my husband has a problem drinking and we're getting some help for it. So, well, the drinking thing and, and drugs is like you could do something about it. You're doing it to yourself purposely. Cancer, you can't help. It happened to you. So right. It's, yeah. Right. So, the, so it occupies a different place, but it also occupies a different place just in the cultural um, uh, sense of what that person must be like if they're struggling with substances. And, and so part of the message here, and again, something that we have learned from all the evidence now for years and years, is that families can help and they can stay connected and they can take care of themselves. Those are not mutually exclusive. You don't have to step away to take care of yourself and leave them to deal with this on their own. Uh, you can do both of those. You can, step away, you can, you can take care of yourself uh, and you can help them. Um, but, but nobody goes to school for this stuff. It's not like you went to college to learn how to deal with your heavy drinking husband. Um, so it, it, there are skills that are important to learn, um, which don't necessarily come naturally. What, what would come naturally is feeling upset, feeling betrayed. I don't understand why you're doing this, taking it personally, right? I mean, that's how many of us would react to these things. Um, so there are some pretty straightforward tools um, within the craft approach that we would just help people learn. Um, one of the big ones is, is, is communication and how to communicate in a more positive way. Um, you know, you're feeling bad, you're feeling upset, so you're likely to go to the negative side. How do you step away from those fights, step away from the negativity, and be able to focus on, um, on talking to your husband, son, father, whoever it is who's had this problem, in a more positive way that's going to change the whole feeling of the household. And it, and it I really want to give you an example. I want to put a, as you know, social workers put a face on it. Let's give another example and be even more specific. You have the wife calling up and talking about her husband abusing alcohol. Right. You know, they, they were out at a party last night and he got roaring drunk, embarrassed her. It was, you know, a hideous, embarrassing, shameful situation. Came home. This is the last straw. I can't stand it anymore, Dr. Foote. What do I do? Right. So in that case, the, the, it's very helpful for, the people, for people who are in that situation to get the message early on that taking care of themselves really does matter. And that is one of the overlaps with an approach like Al-Anon, for instance, which really tells people to step away and take care of themselves. That's a very positive thing to tell people. It's, it's very important. We, we you know, use the analogy of the oxygen mask in a plane type of thing. Like if, the, if there's going to be a lack of oxygen, you've got to put the oxygen mask on yourself first so that you don't pass out. You can't help anybody if you run out of fuel yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's a, an important message. Um, and people, I, I have found just in clinical practice, that one often needs permission to do that. There's so much yeah. guilt, and as you mentioned earlier, and yeah. shame associated with this, especially, not especially, but with spouses, maybe as the, as the wife, I could have done something, or I'm causing him to drink too much, or, yeah. so I really don't deserve to take care of myself. I mean, you kind of have to get through that as well, as you're saying, and get permission to take care of yourself and put the oxygen mask on, go to Al-Anon, or what other resources are available to you as the, uh, as the spouse of the person who is suffering from substance abuse. A hundred percent. And then the piece that's quite different, as you mentioned at the beginning, um, which is not what's typically recommended, is, try to, is to try to understand the idea of, of reinforcement and of positivity and of positive reinforcement. Um, and again, the, people usually have gotten into a pretty negative cycle, and all they're doing is, is clashing. Um, and if, if you can learn how to step away from that and <clears throat> essentially 
we, one of the major things we talk about with people is, you know, your, your husband is not doing this because um, he's crazy, um, and he's not really not doing it to get you either. Um, there's, presumably there could be a lot of anger in the household, but he's really not drinking to just stick it to you. Um, he's doing it because it gives him something. And, you know, I often say to people, if, 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 you know, using cocaine or drinking alcohol were like putting your hand on a hot stove, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You would have stopped this long ago. There would be nothing good about that. It would be all bad. But, but there's obviously something good about it. It gives the person something, even though there's a negative downside, even though it's upsetting my household, even though I get a headache when I wake up, even though my work is a little shaky now because of it. Obviously, those are the bad things. But I don't go to the bar expecting those things. I go to the bar because it gives me something. It makes me feel relaxed after work on Friday night. It's the only time I can see my guy friends and have a good time. It's the only way I can socialize with other people at work and feel like I'm a funny person who they like. Um, you know, there's any number of reasons that people use substances um, that are all very different from each other. And so one of the things to understand in this as a family member is he's getting something out of it, for starters, um, and what else could he do that would give him some of that? Instead of just saying, you need to stop this bad behavior, what are the things that we could put in place instead of that? And all we're, all we're doing right now is fighting. So, you know, we used to love, love to watch TV and sit on the couch together and have a nice time in the evenings. And I, I used to like to make him dinner, but now he comes home and he's drinking, and I really it's a total drag to sit with him. So how can we restore some of those things that are actually positive and rewarding for sober behavior? And that's one of the keys. Can you think through, and that's what you would do in the craft approach, think through what are competing behaviors that he would actually find rewarding that you can start to... to put in place with him. Um, so you're, you're learning how to step away from the negative interactions and just sort of leave them alone. So, so you wouldn't come home from that, from that party where he got roaring drunk and have a huge fight. You might leave him at that party, or you might come home and just go to your room and read a book and not interact with him anymore. So you're not getting into the huge fight part of it. Um, and the next day, you would be spending some time trying to find activities that are, that are positive and constructive and, and participating in those because they're sober activities. So you're really, you're really trying to enforce, reinforce the positive ones and step away from the negative ones. Uh, would you, is that the, what you would call secondary gain from the behavior that appears, well, that is negative, like getting roaring drunk or sitting at the bar with friends, but there is, the, you know, the secondary gain is the camaraderie you have with your buddies when you're out drinking with them. Um, is that... Would you yeah, I wouldn't even call it secondary because that's it's the it's the actual the primary gain, right? When you're, I'm going out to drink with my buddies because it's fun and I, and I like that. Um, and then the question becomes, are there other ways to do that um, that will work also? Um, because that one has a pretty n- negative downside. Um, so you're you're working with families to help them understand that again, their loved one is not crazy, um, but but they're they're motivated to do these reason, behaviors for reasons. And are there other ways we can we can find that and help them find that and then reinforce those? Um, You've been talking now about the spouse. What about the children? How do they become engaged or stay engaged with, let's say in this case, their father who is drinking heavily, who embarrasses them at the soccer game? Um, you know, because children don't have the same kind of emotional and social resources that a spouse does. So what do they do? Right. So, I mean, it really depends on the age also. I mean, the... You know, this is something that's happened in, like, in rehabs for uh, many years is, is that the entire family is invited in, including young kids. And, and you know, what we know about that now is that, that having young kids involved in these kind of discussions is not particularly helpful. 
they don't actually understand what's going on. And having someone tell them that their father is an alcoholic and has a disease and all these kind of things, when you're 10, I mean, what, what are you going to do with that information? You have no idea what that really means. And again, it's a, it's a stigmatized thing in this culture. So now you've been told that your father is basically a bad person, um, and there's no way to work with that. So I think, again, the reason to have the family involved um, in, in, in terms of the example you're giving, the wife, um, would be um, for her to understand this in a better way, for her to be taking care of herself, having better resources, and then she's also able to take care of her children better, um, have more realistic expectations about it. Um, you know, that's one of the other things that people get into is they, the, the resentment is so large, and you know, he doesn't even take them to soccer anymore, and so I'm not going to take them to soccer. Then the kids are sort of caught in this suffering cycle with the parents, if you can take one of those people, one of the adults out, and say, look, you really you need to be the adult here, and you need to take care of yourself, and you need to not run out of gas, um, because, yes, your husband is not actually doing so well, and he's not going to be a great participant right now. So you need to you know, realistically assess that, and, and, and you are going to be the one on duty for this part of the world right now, which is your kids. Um, can we switch the scenario? Into, okay, we've been talking about the father or the, the spouse who has a substance abuse problem. What about, and as you said in the very beginning of the interview, uh, we've all been touched by it. I mean, I can name you four friends who have adult children in their late 20s or early 30s who, are affect, who have substance abuse problems, severe substance abuse problems, drugs, not, drugs and alcohol. And yeah. so you have uh, the parents and you have adult children and who have who have substance abuse problems who are then the, how does that work in terms of, right. of of your approach right so so just i'll just quickly outline the um there we have a, a variety of tools by the way one one of them is the book the beyond addiction book that you talked about at the beginning there's a couple other things that we have and i'll just say our our website which is motivationandchange.com um, there's a couple of other uh, written tools there for which are briefer than the book uh, for spouses, uh, which is called the Partners 20-Minute Guide, and for parents, which is called the Parents 20-Minute Guide. Uh, it's meant to be more of a workbook, more of a very practically focused how to practice communication skills, how to practice self-care, um, and, and all these strategies that, that are part of CRAFT. Um, and those are very good resources, I think, for those specific situations. And you're bringing up, part of the reason I'm bringing that up is because we, we are in the middle of doing a training, a national level training with the partnership at drugfree.org for parents um, to be coaches for other parents. And, and it's training these parents in craft strategies so they can help other parents. Because again, one of the things that happens is, you know, parents and families get into these situations and they're desperate and they have no idea what to do. Uh, and they get, you know, you get a lot of advice you get a lot of suggestions, you get told to detach, you get told to get them into rehab and that's all you can do, or you get told, as you said before, let them hit rock bottom. And it becomes this, it becomes this sort of a monotone of there's only one thing to do and it's sort of a tough love approach and they have to figure it out themselves. But it, it turns out to be, I mean, it, it, parents don't really resonate to that idea. Parents, you know, they really, they don't want to detach from their 15-year-old or their, even their 20-year-old. It, it doesn't feel right so when you can give them tools to stay connected um, and work in a much more positive way, which is what craft is about, they're delighted to do that because that's really where their heart is in the first place. The, the other thing that you hear, and, and you know, you're, you've been in this field and you, you have heard these terms a lot too, the, the, the idea of enabling, the idea of being codependent, 
that's become kind of just also just this widely accepted idea of if you're a family member, you must be enabling somehow or you must be codependent somehow. Um, and it's even sort of talked about like it's a separate disorder now that families must have these behaviors if, they're, you know, if their kid is, a, is struggling with opiates or their husband is drinking or whatever the problem is. Um, and, and those kind of labels really also kind of add to the shame for families um, and as so many people have come into my office and they say, I know I'm enabling him or I, I know I'm codependent. I have to, and, I'm, and, and my response is typically, I'm not, I don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, you're, you love your child. You've been very supportive. Being supportive is not enabling. Being supportive and loving is not codependent. That's a natural response as a parent or as a spouse or as a family member of any sort. Um, and we, you know, staying involved can be very powerful and very helpful. You have to think through how to do it in a way that's not facilitating them using some more. But just the fact that you're staying attached doesn't mean you're enabling. And that's the thing that families really struggle with, that they've been told over and over again, you have to step away. You have to let them hit bottom. Um, and, and it's not true. Um, you know, do I make waffles for my child on Sunday morning? Am I enabling him? Why would that be enabling him? You're, you're, you're helping him start off his day in a positive way. You're being loving. He's not high. And that's what we talk about a lot in craft. What you want to do is reward the positive behaviors. Um, so the times that the, that person is not high or drinking, um, those are good things. So if there's ways to find, uh, if there's ways to, to note that, acknowledge it, reinforce those positive behaviors. Oh, he actually made his bed this morning. He actually got to school on time. He actually came home from school and he wasn't stoned. Those are important things to be able to acknowledge because this is not just true about addiction issues. Positive reinforcement is an incredibly powerful way to help people change. They respond to it much, much quicker, um, and they sustain it much longer. Um, and in, in terms of substance issues, that's exactly what you want. You want them to be more open to hearing what you're saying, and you want them to take it in and sustain those changes because it's a long-term issue. So if you can use these more positively reinforcing approaches, you really do get them to hang in there with you. You really do get them to listen better uh, consider things more easily, and then and then start to cha- make those kind of changes. Um, We've gotten into the blame a, a game, whether we're blaming the person who's one. drinking or doing drugs. We also then, as you just described, as the, the, co- the codependent person, we're blaming them also for the behavior. So, And none of that is positive. You want to reinforce positive behavior. But we have a couple minutes left, so Dr. Foote, tell us, what about statistics? I mean, how has this, I mean, this has been going on, as you say, for many years, the research and the science yeah. uh, in terms of how this stuff works. But do we have actual statistics that say, hey, if you take this approach, we you're do. going to get a better outcome than our, the traditional approach? We, we sure do. I mean, and then again, that's why, we, that's why the evidence matters so much. Um, you know, really, when you look at it, if you went to an interventionist's website, you know, every one of them says 95% success rate, this kind of stuff. We, what we know actually from the research is that that's not true um, and that um, when you do these things in, in controlled trials, head-to-head, you know, level the playing field, that craft across probably 10 to 15 clinical trials has an engagement rate, meaning the degree to which the family is able to have their loved one decide to go to treatment is in the 65 to 75% range, which is extraordinarily high. I mean, that's just a great outcome that, that, that over two-thirds of the people who do this end up getting their spouse or child or loved one into, into formal treatment. And what we know about interventions is that the real numbers, when you put them in clinical trials, 
are more like anywhere from zero to 30% engagement rates. Um, and that's pretty miserable. Um, and so, again, if you just look at the facts, you realize there, are, there is an approach that's actually incredibly powerful in terms of motivating the substance user to make changes. It's also something that, that families and loved ones resonate to because it's, it's a much more positive approach. It doesn't leave them out. It doesn't tell them, let them go, let them hit bottom. So they feel involved. They feel empowered. Um, and it works, <laughs> which is the best news of all. Yeah, that is the best news of all. We have to... Uh... We have to say goodbye, so I want to make sure because it does work. Uh, motivationandchange.com, which is the website you mentioned, motivationandchange.com, and then you'll have like these what twenty-minute guide for partners of uh, people who are, need to make changes and parents. Twenty-minute guide also, and I, I imagine more informa- information about you and craft. But also, um, I want to uh, mention the book again, Beyond Addiction: How Science and Kindness Help People um, and Community. Uh, help people. Help people change. Um, yep. Change. Change is the big word, right? Right. And right. yeah, so you can buy that on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Um, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Very enlightening. Great to talk. Thanks for having great, me. Yeah, great to talk to you, Dr. Jeffrey Foote. Uh, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv. Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. 
My next guest is Sheila Heen. Sheila is the co-author of Thanks for the Feedback, The Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well, which I would probably say that most of us don't do well. Uh, Sheila is a New York Times bestselling author, a partner at Triad Consulting Group, and a lecturer at Harvard Law School. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Sheila. Well, thank you so much. I'm pleased to be here. Well, I'd just like to read kind of the statistics that um, that I, I think, I guess, that you had sent me, but I think this is important for listeners to know that each year over 100 million, which is a lot of people, 100 million American workers receive a performance review or other evaluation, and every child is handed back about 300 assignments, papers, and tests. At least 40 million people will be sizing each other up for love online, whereas 71% of them believe in love at first sight. We will fail eye exams, receive speeding tickets, get passed over for promotion, and not like the numbers staring back at us on the bathroom scale. Our in-laws, neighbors, and friends will give us advice laden with judgment. We all get feedback, and feedback is the key word here, formal and informal, explicit or implicit, in our personal and professional lives every day. So in your book, Thanks for the Feedback, uh, you are going to teach us how to turn these evaluations advice, criticisms, and coaching into productive listening and learning, which most of us just don't do. We often just turn away. We get feedback. I know myself. I get angry. I start blaming the person for criticizing me. You know, all of the stuff, obviously, that you've heard, but that's really not the healthy thing to do. Yeah, you know, that's right. One of the things that... um I think is really important to understand about this book and the work that we've been doing is I think people associate the word feedback with your performance review, and sure, it includes that, but there's a way in which that's the least of it, right? Because we just swim in an ocean of feedback, both explicit and implicit, right? Spoken and unspoken from everybody around us every day of our lives. Every day of our lives, we get it from our in-laws, we get it from our spouses, we get it from our kids, we get it at work. But why do we find it difficult? Of course, I think this is uh, obviously part of the crux of your book. I mean, why why is it difficult for us to accept feedback? What's the process? What gets in the way of us um, even listening? Maybe it may not necessarily be positive feedback, but sometimes we don't even give it a chance. No, I think that that's right. You know, and the bottom line is that feedback really sits at the the crux or the intersection of two core human desires. On the one hand, we really do want to learn and grow. I mean, it's human beings are wired for that. It's a big piece of what gives us happiness and satisfaction in life. You can see that in the research about happiness. And it's why we take up hobbies in retirement. Like, it's why otherwise normal people stick with the game of golf. That occasional good round fools us into thinking that we're getting better, and that's really fun. The problem is that there's a second core human need, which is the need to be accepted and respected and loved the way we are now. And the very fact of feedback suggests that maybe how you are now isn't quite a-okay. And it may also be why the people closest to us, right, our spouse, our kids, our in-laws, their feedback is most upsetting, right, because they're the people from whom we most want that acceptance of who we are and how we are. Well, you talk about that there are three ways in which feedback can push your buttons. Any one of those groups that we just described, spouse, partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, kids, uh, can push those buttons. So uh, what are those buttons that they push when they give us feedback? 
Yeah, great question. So that, that tension between those core human needs isn't going to go away. There's no magic wand that we can wave. Um, and so really step one in getting better at receiving feedback, and we really think that it's a skill that you can actually learn and get better at. Step one is just to pay attention to and understand your reactions. Now, you would think that, you know, there are a million different kinds of feedback and there are a million different reactions, but in fact, you can pretty neatly categorize all of them into three key triggers that we have when we get feedback. Um, The first is what we call truth triggers. The minute someone says something, we want to decide, is this true or not true? Is this right or is this wrong? And if I can find something wrong with it, then I can set it aside and relax and move on with my life. And so let's give an example of that. I like examples as a social worker. Okay. I'll give, you know, myself, I have three kids who are early 30s. And so they'll start giving me feedback about what kind of a parent I was and how that affected them. And if it's negative, I might, this, as you described, uh, the, tr- the this kind of truth trigger well if they're criticizing me for something that they you know feel that I did to them when they were younger and I could have done something differently I'm like whoa is that the truth or you know so yeah exactly kind of con- yeah so they'll say to you you know mom I just don't think that you were that attentive or you weren't you weren't present right um, and immediately that is so threatening to the story we tell about who we are being a good mother. Um, that we're incented to react to what's wrong with it. Um, and, you know, I, you can tell me the things that come to mind for you. What's wrong with it? Well, what about all the things that I gave up to be there for you? And I can think of a hundred or a thousand examples of that. And by the way, I can't believe you're saying this to me now, you know, over Thanksgiving dinner or in front of so-and-so. So we, we not only find things that are wrong with um, the feedback itself, but also how they gave it, when they gave it, why they're giving it, right? You're just Absolutely. upset with me because, you know, I couldn't um, fly across the country to come to your, um, you know, dinner party. So if we can find anything wrong, it's like a get-out-of-jail-free card in our mind. Like, then I can argue with it and say, well, that's just not true. And that's comforting, the problem is that there's always something wrong with the feedback they're giving you. There's always something they don't understand about the pressures on you when they were small. Um, and it could be that the feedback is 90% wrong. But that last 10% might be something that they really want you to hear. And so one of the things that we recommend is don't decide immediately whether it's right or it's wrong. And assume there's going to be lots that's wrong with it. And so just to make yourself feel better, you can make a list. I find this very emotionally satisfying. I'm going to make a list of everything that is wrong with what you just said to me. Um, And so, you know, I'm upstairs after the dinner party making that list. Then, is this a list so, that you share with them? This is, this is, I mean, do you share the list? Because you're going to write down, let's say, the 90% of the stuff that, that's wrong. I mean, my response is usually just to kind of add to what you're saying. I'm thinking, well, you didn't really have all that. You don't know what was happening in my life at the time, why I couldn't go to that soccer game or why, you know, whatever. But so do, yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's right. So I think don't decide whether you'll share it. When you make the list, because if you're deciding, oh, this is what I want to tell them, um, you'll actually edit yourself. Instead, just make the list for yourself first. Then you can decide whether and which parts of it that you might want to share. But I think it's just satisfying and comforting to say, well, okay, you know, let's talk about all the things that are wrong. I'm going to make a list right here. They had no idea what was going on in my life. They told me at the time they didn't care about the soccer game. You know, so what, what was I supposed to believe, et cetera, et cetera. 
But now I actually have to step across and make a second list. And the second list is, is there anything that might be right with this feedback? And, you know, it may just be 5 or 10%, but if what they want, they're trying to get me to hear is there were times when I felt lonely. As a kid, okay, that's something maybe I do need to hear, and that might warrant another conversation. Now, by the way, I want to be really clear. When we say um, receiving feedback well, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to take the feedback. In other words, at the end of the day, once you've understood it, you might decide, you know, I don't think this is a priority right now or I'm not going to be able to change it or whatever. And, in fact, there's a whole chapter on boundaries because there are times where receiving feedback well means protecting yourself from relentless criticism. And so in Chapter 10, we talk about situations where you may need boundaries and then how to put those boundaries in place. And and doing all of that, I mean, it goes back to the first thing that you said, then that allows us to learn and grow. I mean, if you do this, if you, as you're describing it, you know, I mean, if there's 90% of, you know, you go upstairs and you write down um, a list of 90% of what the feedback was wasn't, isn't true, but 10% is, but if you can embrace that, then you can grow, as you say, I mean, which is really important. And then, yeah, yeah, and setting boundaries and protecting yourself, because all of that contributes to your own emotional growth, and also the growth and the connection with whomever is giving you the the feedback, whether it's your kids or your spouse, or I suppose even your employer. Yes. It will mean that you'll have a better conversation about it. Once you get um, practiced at it, you can actually do it more easily in the moment, right? You can notice, okay, as they're telling me this in my performance review or whatever, um, I'm reacting to all the ways in which this is just not right, this is wrong. Um, But let me just listen for a moment to think, is there anything that they're telling me that's right? And do I want to ask any questions about that? So a lot of the end result of getting better at receiving feedback is actually just having better quality conversations about it. And that has a huge impact on the relationship. Um, The marriage research out there um, from John Gottman up in Seattle who studies marriage, um, shows that spouse's willingness to take input um, from their partner, to be influenced by them and to take coaching, um, is a key predictor for healthy, stable marriages. You know, and that's interesting since often when your spouse is complaining about those same character traits that they've been complaining about for years, you know, we don't think of that as feedback. We think of that as them just being annoying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but well, how we, don't we think respond of it as to that? Feedback, we think about it as criticism. I think the yes. word criticism keeps coming. You're criticizing my person. You're criticizing my abilities. You're, it's, it's a, and so it just, as you say, it just pushes your button. I mean, it pushes one's buttons, and you, you just can't listen to it. You can't hear it. Yes, and so this is a really key thing to understand, which is that when we use the word feedback, feedback actually includes three very different kinds of things. The first is appreciation. Appreciation just says, I see you, I get you, you matter, right? I mean, with little kids, this is right on the surface. Mom, 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 look, look, I brushed my teeth. It's like, great, you're 12, good for you. Um, But I don't think we ever outgrow that need to be seen. And sometimes at work when people say, I wish I got more feedback around here, what they really mean is, I wish people noticed that I work here. Um, It's a key piece of what keeps us motivated. The second kind of feedback is coaching. You know, I have a suggestion. I'm going to try to help you get better at something. But the third kind is evaluation, assessment, 
or appraisal or judgment. Here's how you rank. Here's how you stack up. In personal life, you know, where is this relationship going? Where do we stand? That's the most emotionally loud. And criticism is often evaluation or judgment, like you're a terrible person, um, you know, implied because of the following criticism. But what they're really trying to give you is coaching. And so we're reacting to the judgment packed in, but what they're really trying to say is, I wish you would do this differently, or this has a bad impact on me, or I find this frustrating. And so criticism is this funny hybrid of um, evaluation and judgment combined with implicit coaching. And we react to the judgment, naturally. Sheila, what about if one ages? Uh, you know, I'm part of the baby boomer population, and I find now very often that friends or family as one ages become, and maybe myself as well, more resistant to listening to feedback. I'm going to call it feedback because still viewing it as criticism. There becomes kind of a rigidity in the way you accept this feedback. as It doesn't necessarily have to be, obviously, as you point out in your book, but why does that happen? Oh, that's a great question. And, you know, I have had people observe both things. In other words, like you, that well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, and sometimes the feedback you're giving me is based on things that happened years ago, right? So that's upsetting because I can't change it. Um, And it suggests that not only am I not okay the way I am now, I've never been okay (laughs) the way I've been now. So that the stakes are higher in long-term relationships. But I've also heard people say, like, actually, as I've gotten older, I've gotten a little bit better at feedback because I have perspective to say, okay, well, this one thing isn't such a big deal. Right. I mean, I think I was more brittle around feedback as a young professional in my 20s because whatever, I, whatever mistakes I made or ways in which I disappointed myself or someone else were sort of a bigger piece of who I was. Um, and now that it's a number of years later, we won't specify how many, uh, <laughs> a couple decades later, it's like, okay, I've learned that I do make mistakes, and the question is, can I learn from those mistakes? Can I make those mistakes right with this person? And it's not such a big deal. It's a natural part of trying to push yourself and keep getting better at something. You also have a history of successes. So if someone is is giving you feedback, well, you can put that in more of a context. Is that what you're saying? Maybe you've had 20 years of whatever you've been doing, and it's worked well in most cases. So you're not you're not as vulnerable to the to the feedback. Yeah, I think that that's right. And that actually brings us circling back around to the other two triggers, Um, because earlier we were talking about there are three key kinds of triggers that we react to. The first is truth triggers. Um, Another one is what we call identity triggers, or sort of the challenge of being me. Um, And if you look at the neuroscience, what you find is that people's sensitivity to feedback, meaning how far they swing emotionally and how long it takes them to recover, it can vary by up to 3,000%. So, you know, one person in the family may be relatively um, sensitive to feedback. The other person in the family is, you know, pretty insensitive or even keel, perhaps I should say. Although, if you're insensitive to feedback, you don't really care what I call you, perhaps. So um, when feedback happens between the two of them, the even keel person then says, look, you're overreacting to this. Like, you got to not take it so personally. You have to get a thicker skin, which then piles more feedback on top of whatever the original feedback was. Now, if you're a sensitive person and you swing wide emotionally, 
you can fall. It distorts your sense of the feedback itself. It kind of supersizes it, and you can fall into what we call the Google bias. Um, and it's as if, like mentally and emotionally, you are Googling everything that is wrong with me. And you get, you know, 1.2 million hits of all of your past mistakes and failures and poor decisions um, and ways in which you've hurt other people and there are sponsored ads like from your father or your ex. And I think that all you can think about is all the things that are wrong with you. And we call it the Google bias because your search results are dependent on your search term. You didn't search for things I'm handling relatively well, which would give you a more balanced picture. Right? You'd get 5 million hits on things that you're actually handling nicely or succeeding at, and that gives you a more balanced picture. You reminded me of it with this comment that like, it's easier to get a, a balanced picture of who you are and sort of how that fits in, your mistakes fit in with your successes, which I think is the goal, which is to, dis, um, we call it dismantling distortions, we have a chapter on how do you dismantle the distortions to see the feedback at actual size and to see yourself in a balanced way. So in your book, you really put the person, the individual who's receiving the feedback, you are empowering them. We can empower ourselves to use feedback in this very positive way. But you really, I mean, it's, you really, I, I love this book because it really, it's so practical and it's really important because Boy, if you can accept feedback as you've been as we've been talking and describing it, I mean, it really puts you in a position to. I keep using the word grow to go forward to have a deeper understanding of how you operate and perform and connect with your people that are important to you. So, it's a really important process that you're describing. That was one of the things that was so um, fascinating to me is how central this set of skills is for everything in your life, like all of your different relationships. You know, at work, the research shows that people who solicit negative feedback, and by that they mean you don't just fish for compliments. You're looking for, hey, what can I improve? Those people adapt more quickly to new roles. They report higher satisfaction, and they actually get higher performance reviews. So it's not just that you actually take charge of and can accelerate your own learning, which is true, but you also change the way that other people see you. You know, they're like, oh, she's really easy to work with, and... You know, if, if there's any problem, like, she's really quick to be, you know, interested in what it is, to fix it right away. You know, that's really relaxing and refreshing um, because it's so rare, I think. Sheila, what about this? This is kind of, what about the person who's giving the feedback? Now, as a, and I'm going back to kind of my status or my age group, as a baby boomer, I have I have two or three girlfriends who I've been very close to for many, many years. And, of course, the closer I get, and I've known them and their children and their relationships and their marriages and their divorces, I sometimes feel like I'd like to give feedback that I'm afraid that they won't be able to accept or they will feel uh, put upon or get angry with me. I have more information about them. How do you know how much feedback to give? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, and it actually brings us to the third trigger, which is relationship triggers or the challenge of we, which is all about your reaction to the person giving the feedback. Um, and sometimes our reaction to the person giving it is bigger than the feedback itself. Like what they're saying could actually be true, but I can't believe you know that you, of all people, would say it um, or that you said it when and where that you did which was totally hurtful or inappropriate. So 
one of the interesting things about good friends is that they're in that category of the people we want to accept us just the way we are. And while feedback is sometimes described as holding up a mirror, um, in fact, um, there are two kinds of mirrors. One is a supportive mirror. A supportive mirror shows us at our best in flattering light, right? And we need supportive mirrors to reassure us that this latest mistake or fight with our teenager isn't the whole story about who we are as a parent, right? And we cast our friends and the colleagues that we're close to at work often implicitly as supportive mirrors when we go to vent to them about a piece of criticism that we just got. But the other kind of mirror is what we call an honest mirror. An honest mirror shows you what you look like right now when you're really not at your best and you maybe could be handling this better. Um, And so as friends, often people come to vent to us and they clearly want reassurance. They need the supportive mirror right now. But we're also wondering to ourselves, you know, the giver was really unskilled and had poor judgment about how they told you, but, like, they're not totally wrong. You know, like, I could be an honest mirror for you right now um, if you gave me permission, but without that permission for us to suddenly switch to be a supportive mirror um, can really feel like a betrayal to them, I think. Yeah, well, I'll give you one. We only have a few minutes left, but I could, this is, fascinating, but I have an example. I mean, I have a girlfriend going through a divorce, but it's been five years since the divorce, but she's still going over the same issues with her ex-husband that she did when she was married for 30 years. So I am. my feedback was, well, you know, it takes in two to do this dance. I mean, he can't do this unless you participate in it. And so it's, it's not just he, it's also you. I don't yeah. know that that was well-received, but I had to say it. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe casting it in the frame of, look, here's my intention, and here's the impact I see this having on you. You know, as your friend, it's hard for me to see you still in so much pain and still having the same arguments or fights or whatever the pattern is, and that's, that's what I notice. Um, and I've noticed a couple things that might help um, because I see you suffering for so long, but I don't know whether that's something that you want, right? And then see if they're ready to have that conversation um, they might say, well, that's interesting, so what do you notice? But don't expect them not to be upset by the feedback. There's no magic wand. Um, so I think the key thing is in your relationship, to be clear, my intentions are to help, but as the receiver, the receiver actually knows whether what you're doing is helping or not so that you can put the topic on the table, and then when they're ready for you to be an honest mirror, um, the invitation is there. I will use that advice for the next time because it will come up. <laughs> and also yes, I have to exactly. be able to accept have to be able to accept the same from from my friends and, and, and family as well. Okay, one minute left. So the book, I want to thanks for the feedback, the science and art of receiving feedback well. But uh, Sheila, what website can we go to? Um we can buy the book at Amazon dot com, bookstores everywhere, but also do you have a website? Does the book have a website? We do. So um, we have an author site. It's called stoneandheen.com, all spelled out, A-N-D, in between. Um, And on that website, we have some um, resources. In another month or so, we're actually going to have a reader's guide. If you want to do this with your book club um, or with your team at work, um, we'll have a reader's guide with good questions to ask so that you can talk about how you each respond to feedback and what would be helpful um, for other people to support you learning how to receive it better and actually take charge and accelerate your own learning and improve your relationships. 
Fantastic. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great show. Thank you. Yeah, it was great. Well, you have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.